The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and this is the 23rd day of August 2016. Uh, I'd like to remind you each and every week that I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, and uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying and What is Chen Selling? And we are going to actually have Chen with us uh, in the second segment of today's show. He'll be talking about some of his top picks uh, as well. Now, um, just to sign up for Chen's letter or mine, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and it is a most exciting time. Really fun to do what I do again, write newsletters, uh, write my newsletter about mining stocks, especially exploration stocks. And my personal top pick is up more than 24% today, at least it was before airtime. And that is Quentin Henning, Dr. Quentin Henning, who's been a guest on this show on a number of times, uh, who's in search of the next Whitwaters Rand deposit in northwestern Australia. He may be on to something very, very big. Uh, certainly the action of the stock today suggests some people think so. And, uh, well, I have thought so for some time, the prospects of something very significant taking place uh, with Dr. Quentin Henning's theories and, and the results that he's gotten so far from his exploration efforts. We'll be talking to Dr. Henning sometime in the near future. Do you want to encourage each of you to send along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com? And we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are TriMetals Mining. Coral Gold Resources, New Legacy Gold Corp, Brazil Resources, Columbus Gold, and RN Resources. Uh, we do have a very busy day uh, today, so let's get right to it. I've named today's show, Why Does the Fed Persist with Failed Policies? Now, Ms. Shedlack was going to be my main guest today, but when I learned yesterday that he was not going to be able to make the show today, I was really lucky to get with me once again John Rubino. He had been with us last week. Well, if there is any guest that I know of, any person that comes on this show who on very short notice could very quickly answer the questions posed by Ms. Shedlack, it would be John Rubino. So really happy to have John Rubino of dollarcollapse.com with us today. And uh, also, we're very fortunate 
almost every week to have Michael Oliver with us. Uh, and uh, right after Michael, Chen Lin will come on to talk about a couple of his favorite biotech stocks and energy stocks. And I think Chen will have a thing or two to say as well about gold. But now, Michael is with us. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Great to be back, Jay. Always good to talk to you because you, uh, uh, you, you sort of keep me comfortable in a sense that, uh, that I, feel, I feel comfortable in terms of if I'm on the right side of a market. Not from a day-to-day perspective because I'm not a trader, but as an investor. So I'm so appreciative of you being with us. Your work, um, you know, you, you talked this past weekend, you've been talking about the T-bond, which I think is beyond a doubt uh, the most important market. Uh, in the sense that the United States dollar is still the reserve currency, very, very important. And uh, you, you had mentioned in your weekend missive, well, you, it's some colorful language, which makes your reports very interesting, I must say. For a technical analyst, you're really a lot of fun to read. And in your weekend missive, you talked about the T-bond tiptoeing near a minefield of downside trend. And uh, at around noon today, the T-bond was unchanged at around 172 and 12.30 seconds, somewhere in that range. Uh, at what price is your momentum work telling you now is sort of key for the T-bond? Where, where do you think we're going to hear, hear that whoosh sound? It's a, it's a range. And by a range, I mean that if I look at various momentum trend indicators of the T-bond futures, uh, for everything from intermediate trend like a... Like a oscillator that measures T-bonds versus a 10-week average, for example, which is like measuring it versus a 50-day. Or let's say I measure it versus a three-month average or a three-quarter average or three-year. Each of those measures T-bonds on a larger and larger scale. It's like having a microscope. You change the lens, okay? And each of them has their own statement to make. Uh, One of them, the more short-term, obviously, will flip-flop more often. Because, you know, short-term trends go up and they go down, they go up and they go down, all within the context of something larger. But right now there's a cluster of numbers. And it starts roughly around 171 on a weekly closing basis. Now, I had that a week ago for my subscribers. I said if we'll close this week out at 171 or lower, that's negative for the first of these upper end of the range minefield numbers, okay, that did start mm-hmm. something bad. Well, we traded under 171, closed out the week at 171 and 330 seconds. <laughs> you know, ooh, saved by the bell. And then, and then today traded all the way up to 173 on the T-bonds. Like, oh boy, you know, I, I got right, right near the cliff, looked over and pulled back. Oh. The problem is this for the T-bonds. Whether they hold these numbers for another few weeks, have another rally, it doesn't really matter to me. The yeah. numbers are definable. They're in a zone of about five points width, starting okay, 171 on down to about 166. You mm-hmm. go through all those numbers, it's over. The whoosh mm-hmm. starts at the lower end of the box, of the minefield. Once you, but once you start tripping into the numbers, one indicator is going to flip negative, let's say an intermediate trend. That's like a push, like a little domino falls. Yeah. It's a mm-hmm. little larger domino. And the next larger domino, you know, you, you trip all the minefield, boom, you're gone. Uh, it's going to happen. I'm confident the T-bonds will top and collapse once they've topped. I think the top is probably near. We may have already seen the top tick. But the issue is the downturn triggering those numbers. And I urge my subscribers when I make these points about big trend changes in this market or that market, don't get all excited. Be patient. Wait. Let the numbers tell you when. Because if you're too eager and you establish a position too early, you might get killed and then Mm -hmm. be right. 
And the better thing to do is miss a few points and be right. Know you've got the wind at your back. Right mm-hmm. now on the T-bonds, I'm confident they're going to collapse and rates are going up. Probably you'll see the evidence this year. Mm-hmm. But the trigger point has not been hit. We're dancing on top of it. This is also true with the Japanese government bond. So uh, it, it, I'm watching a lot of things in that regard. Right. The three the three uh, sovereign risk bonds, the, uh, yeah. uh, the, the German bond, the, the yeah. Correct. Those three will go together, as you said before. I, I, uh, think, will, I think they'll go together, yes. Yeah, right. All right, so uh, if, if we're going to see uh, rising interest rates, uh, what might that pretend for commodities? I think the commodities are poised equally and opposite the T-bonds. Uh, although I, my confidence that the uh, – I, I use the Bloomberg Commodity Index. It happens to mm-hmm. be a well-balanced index. It used to be the uh, Dow Jones UBS Index, and then in 2006, I think Bloomberg bought it. It's a good metric of the commodity basket. It doesn't overly weight energy like the uh, Goldman Sachs Index, for example. It's, uh, so gold and silver are a certain percent. The grains are a certain percent. Meats, oil, you know, the whole deal. It's a good index. I like it. Uh, it is poised for a major breakout on annual momentum. You cannot see it on the price chart. The price chart mm-hmm. looks like, yeah, it's uptick a bit, big deal. Yeah. The uh-huh. annual momentum chart says it's explosive. And right uh-huh. now it's at 86, just above 86. You close out this month over 87, it's, it's going up. You close wow. next month out about 86, where you are now, it's going up. And I think you could get a surge in the commodity basket Gold's already underway, of course. We know that. So is oil. But some of the commodities aren't yet. And when you move this, the BCOM, as it's symbol, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, out above these numbers that I've pegged, I think you could get a 20% surge within a quarter or two. Hmm. Wow. Uh, and that would, upset, that would go with a, a T-bond decline. In other words, you're getting inflation. They want it, they're going to get it. And they're not going <laughs> to get it where they want it. <laughs> they're going to get it in the assets they don't want it in. And. And they might get it more rapidly than they want. Michael, with just a couple of minutes left, I have to ask you a very interesting comment you made about gold. You said, whenever gold stalls, gold longs, the bulls are always concerned that a meaningful correction is coming. And then you said, their gains, especially in gold stocks, are so vast this year that gold longs are beside themselves with desire to protect something they haven't seen for a long time. Well, you don't seem to be concerned about any serious correction on the downside. Why not? Well, we just had, well, as far as I'm concerned, a correction involves double-digit percent, you know, 10%, 15% at least. Uh-huh. We just saw an 8% drop in gold during the month of May from the 1306 mm-hmm. high down to 1199. Took out the two lows of April, the lows of uh, the month of April and March, thereby scaring the price chart, folks. You know, like, mm-hmm. oh, this is the start of a major decline because you took out two prior month's lows. Yeah. We thought it would stop in the 1190s. It did. Twelve trading days later, you were well above those highs. You were in the low 1300s. Why did we stop at 1306 at the May peak? Because the high tick of 2015 was 1307. So some Johnny with a nickel in front of a freight train thought he could sell gold, make a buck. He did. Uh He made a hundred and some dollars if he was smart and got out. Uh Twelve days later, it came roaring back through that. Now, we just had an 8% correction in the May collapse. 8%, Mm -hmm. if you call that a collapse, it was a correction. Mm -hmm. Uh, A mini-correction, I called it. Why now that we've just blown through that shelf of price resistance? The 2015 mm-hmm. high and the May 2016 high at 1307 and 1306. Why now in the lower part of the 1300s should we have another correction? Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. Interesting. To me. I have I have no technical evidence of a correction coming. From oh, very 
Well, that's that's very interesting. I think you just really spelled out why I like your work so much for my purposes, Michael, not as a trader, but as an investor. So, you know, we'll let that guy have that $100 if he was absolutely he perfect and picking a timing. <laughs> yes, if he got it. Uh, but, you know, I'm looking at companies that are developing resources in the ground that have been there for millions and millions of years, and now they're about to bring them out. And with the gold price where it is... Um, you know, as long as we don't have anything catastrophic on the downside, I'm very pleased. And uh, I think you see a lot of upside here yet before gold enters any serious resistance still, right? Yeah, I still think the upper 1400s, low 1500s, at that point, then maybe you can get a little itchy about what you could call a correction, meaning something of a double percent nature, you know, 10-15% pullback. At that point, I would get more itchy. Right now, I think itchiness is not a good idea. In fact, it's likely to shake you out of your position. And that's yeah. happened probably a couple times with most gold investors over the last six, seven months. They've probably been shaken out twice, three times, because they got scared. Uh, well, I can tell you that scared. I don't know how many. Yeah, I don't know how many technical analysts that I, you know, that I pay some attention to that have been very nervous about it. So you hit the. Uh, hit, I think you hit the nail right on the head. A lot I of nervousness, wrong, but, but I, I yeah. don't. I don't think I am. I think it's still solid, and, and yeah. uh, there's more to go. I will say this: you get up into 1370s again. We've been yeah. above there, by the way. Uh, you're mm-hmm. gone. I think they'll mm-hmm. pack another hundred dollars on very rapidly. So that's that whoosh. Anywhere near those highs that we. That's just that whoosh point we're looking for. The whoosh point whoosh for the point, yes. that the bulls are looking for anyway. All right, Michael. We have, we have to leave it there because that's all the time we have. Thanks so much sure. for sharing your time and insights with us. Greatly appreciated, and we'll look to do it again next week. Hopefully. Thanks, Jay. Bye bye. All righty. Well, folks, uh, don't go away. Uh, we're going to be right back after the commercial break with Chen Lin. Uh, so uh, we're going to have hear what Chen has to say about his top picks. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective Rea Uranium project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. Coral Gold is an experienced precious metals explorer. Coral recently sold its flagship Robertson Gold property in Crescent Valley, Nevada to Barrick for $20 million and a royalty that increases with the price of gold. Coral is now refining its vision and focus for gold exploration in Nevada with over $20 million in cash, a favorable share structure, and three gold properties in the Crescent Valley region near Barracks Cortez Pipeline Operation. Coral is well-positioned to pursue a number of growth opportunities now under consideration by management. Coral trades as CLH on the TSX Venture Exchange. 
From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me Chen Lin, my partner. And uh, it's been way too long since I've had Chen on. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Chen. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate the opportunity. Always good to have you with me. Uh, gold is having one of the best years it's had in quite some time. It's up you know, around 27% or so from uh, from January. Uh, it's broken through some key resistance levels. Michael Oliver, who we just had on the show, uh, has been quite bullish on it. He saw, from a momentum perspective, saw, uh, not from a trading perspective, but longer term, thought that gold was getting ready for a major move. Uh, you were a little less bullish to start the year, um, and, and you had your good reasons as well. You thought maybe 2016 might not be the year for gold. You thought 2017, even 2018 or so. Uh, well, what are your thoughts now? Do, are we seeing the real move in gold, or do you think this is sort of a head fake, Chen? Oh, yeah. I originally thought my prediction was 2017 because there are a couple of reasons. Usually, uh-huh. a dollar bull market lasts about average six years, where the fourth year into the dollar bull market. So I was hoping, you know, maybe the dollar bull market will last, uh, continue, and then we get in the year before the end of the dollar bull market. But right now, sure. there's uh, all the different things happening uh, around the world. Uh, so it's uh, the, the pattern got you know, got, got changed. So I was, yes, I was not uh, as bullish as I could at the beginning of the year, but I've been, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've done some very, you know, successful trade in gold exactly. and silver stocks. Exactly. And uh, right now, is we are getting a, at an inflection point. So usually gold, if you look at the uh, seasonal pattern of gold, uh, they usually correct around the summer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the reason is that uh, after the excitement summer and there's nothing happen, so gold tend to drip down during the summer months. However, mm-hmm. starting September, we are ahead of the Indian traditional Indian wedding season, uh-huh. and then w- we will have uh, uh, the Jewish holidays and then Christmas and Chinese New Year. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, September is traditionally a starting of the gold strong season, physical strong season. Okay, mm-hmm. and then there's another reason. Uh, recently, uh, I saw the report that Indian Q2 demand was down 70, 80 percent. Right, China was down less, 30, 40 percent, partially due to the the sharp runoff of gold. Sure. All these jewelry shop they start to withhold. Uh, the purchase, right? Sure. That, that's my interpretation, okay? Yeah. There are people reading uh-huh. different ways. There are people yeah. say, oh, because gold goes up, China Indian demands are gone. I don't think so. No. I think as those Jewish are, are withholding and hoping, uh, you know, gold will come in, gold and silver will come in so they can buy. So yeah. I see the seasonal demand this year will be stronger than, than usual. Ah, very interesting. Well, interesting insights. So it makes a lot, certainly makes a lot of sense. 
uh, a lot of sense to me. Do you have a couple of uh, gold shares that you that you're particularly fond of now? Yeah, the Novo Resource. Uh, that's you just you just discussed. That's when up more than twenty percent. That's extremely happy. Uh, you know, I, when when I came back for vacation, first thing I tell my subscribers to get into the eighty-five cents private placement with a full warrant. Now the even the warrant was almost in the money. So oh. that, that that has been uh, um, you know it's a very very nice run for for the stock. Mm-hmm. Sure it, has been. It, yeah. It's tried to look for. A giant deposit. You know more than I do. <laughs> you yeah. you, 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 you've been keeping telling me in the past years, and thanks to your advice, I met the management quite a few times, and I know the story not as well as you, but quite well. So I'm quite excited about the prospect there. You know, their, their bulk sampling, their drilling program should be mm-hmm. very exciting in the next few months. Yeah, I think so, Chen. I, I, I really believe so. Of course, after a big day like today at a 24 25% move, uh, I'm sure there's some people that are thinking about selling. But, uh, you know, I'm in this for the long run, and I think um, uh, based on, on what I know fundamentally, this has a lot further to run. But, uh, but you know, time will tell for sure. I've thought of the, I thought that about some other stocks, and I was wrong. So you never know. I, I, we just do the best we can, Chen. Always try to understand as best we can, and then honestly talk about it. I know you do the same thing. So uh, you've always liked Oceana for quite a while. There's some of the other major, pl- major, bigger stocks that you are involved in. You still like Oceana? Yeah, I like Oceana. They're going to start a new uh, mine in South Carolina. This will be the first ever new mine in South Carolina for a long time. So basically, yes. they're looking for it's a low cost, five hundred dollar, and they potentially consolidated the whole area. So, mm-hmm. and plus, they have other mines in New Zealand and Philippines that generate a lot of cash flow. So that, that's mm-hmm. still my, one of my favorite. And recently, I'm very keen in another uh, company called, a uh, uh, big company, actually, it's Goldfield. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm, sure. I'm more, uh, you know, more, a little bit higher market cap than you do, Jay, because, yes. because I'm managing a pretty large portfolio of my family. Uh, mm-hmm. Goldfield itself is seven largest gold miner in the world, right? They mm-hmm. purchased Barrick asset from Australia um, a year, over a year ago. So any company who buy Barrick's asset went, went through the roof because Barrick sell their valuable asset at the bottom of the they market. They had to. We know that. Yeah, they were, they were stressed. <laughs> they had to sell, yeah. Uh-huh. You look at their report. Last quarter, the, the, their Australia asset bought from Barrick generated over $100 million in cash flow. Okay. And wow. then their South Africa... Deep South, you know, the, 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 uh, the South Deep, I mean, the mine mm-hmm. started turning around, right? They, they started to generate the first uh, cash flow last quarter. Hopefully, they will, it will continue to improve, and it's a complete turnaround story. It's a very big mine, you know, seven largest gold miner, but it right now is still a single digit. I think this one has a lot of room to run. All right. Well, let's switch to to energy. Uh, at least one of our listeners, and maybe one of your subscribers, uh, ask you to comment on Canical Energy and Pan Orient. Those are, I believe, they've been two of your favorites, Chen, and they've certainly been really good performers. Can you just comment on those two, perhaps? Oh yeah, they are just in those. Right now, we are heading into the energy shoulder season. Right, the oil price general weekend. During yeah. the fall. Remember, two years ago, I actually predicted the oil crash from $100. Yes, you did. To, to, you know, my target was 47 I think, but actually overshoot my, my target. So 
always uh, because uh, summer driving season finish uh, refiners switching over from one you know one type of fuel to the other to winter fuel so always there will be weakened demand so in the fall season always weak for oil so right now it's com- market doesn't know that the, the uh, fund managers are in kind of uh, chaotic they don't know what to do right there's a run there's push there some want to run for the energy someone pull out of energy so there's a lot of confusing in the market so stock those stock doesn't move much but they all have very important catalysts coming uh, in particular power in the drilling of their East Japan that will be the one of the largest onshore discovery conventional discovery okay mm-hmm. in the world that's scheduled to drill in Q4. Okay, that, mm, that's why okay. I've been waiting for five years. And yeah. it's, it's about to happen. The, mm-hmm. uh, the, they also have tie drilling, high-impact tie drilling. Mark doesn't pay attention because the company relocated in Thailand. Their management relocated in Thailand. It really doesn't have much promotion going on. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that's problem. And the same for Canaco. Canaco doesn't do much promotion. Like Char Gamma, I, 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 I met you know, uh, a couple of months ago when I was visiting Colombia, he doesn't like to travel. He doesn't want to visit meet, meet analysts. Uh-huh. <laughs> he just want to go stay there to to drill to to produce oil and gas. But that, that, that. Uh-huh. well, the, the, you pick your your choice, Jay. You know, you want the most promoted company on earth yeah. and create yeah. all these boom and bust and pump yeah. and dump, and it's very common in Canada. Or you yes. go for the most down to the earth management. Yeah. And then who really focus on execution. And right. none, none of these companies don't have done any promotion. I mean, especially powering is complete zero promotion. Kind of call right. little, you know, there's some company follow it, you know, broken yeah. bond that. That's pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so, but the key for Canaco is they're generating a lot of cash flow every day. Mm-hmm. Because they're natural gas, they're selling at a $5 and change, and then cost them $1 to produce. Wow. Not, not a single company on earth. Okay, energy company, I can say, is generating that kind of profit margin, right? including all these major. So that that's a key. So they they just they just do it step by step, uh, consolidate the area, generate cash flow. The stock will appreciate. They were both of already both of the company already appreciate this year, but not as much as some other you know sure. near sure. bankruptcy candidate. Yeah. But they they did quite well <laughs> this year. But I'm just holding. Just, I, I haven't talked much on my newsletter. I haven't traded much. I'm just holding the stock. Yeah, yeah. Long-term investment. Uh, you're looking at intrinsic value, Chen, and not hot air that uh, some of these companies sell on. And of course, both these companies uh, generate their own cash flow. They haven't needed to go to the investment banks to raise capital, so there's no need to get their story out there that much. They just simply tend to their knitting and get their business done and do an excellent job. So those are two that I uh, have in my letter as well. Thanks to you, Chen. Now. Uh, go to your. We have to ask you about your biotechs. We got a, maybe three, four minutes left. Uh, Sarepta and Sorrento have been two of your mainstay biotechs. Talk to us briefly about both of those companies, if you would, please. Yeah, Sarepta has been huge, huge winner for me uh, in the past uh, ten-year decade. I consider it's one of the best winners. I mean, it's already four-digit game for me. I sold 
uh, split by more than half recently. The reason is not because the story is no no good, because we're still waiting for FDA decision. I think the chance uh-huh. of approval still is 80%. Okay, It's a risk-reward at current price. Still is very good, but I'm just up so much, so I have to take some off the table. Sure. That's the only sure. reason. I wouldn't. I would. I would never forgive myself if you know it, the other units go the other way and I lost much of my profit. Right. So that's a problem. Uh, Sorrento has some gains this year, but has been rather disappointing compared with my standard. You know, stock would go now over seven dollar. Seven dollar change used to be five dollar, but it's, it's still not as good as I had hoped. Uh, part of the reason is um, uh, that the management, they push out the other Patrick Susong, which is another, is a billionaire uh, mm-hmm. in, in California. There's a little bit, I think, uh, power struggle between those two. So uh-huh. there are some shareholders who was with Patrick Susong, maybe they're selling, they're leaving the, the company, leaving uh-huh. the stock. So that's, uh-huh. that's great. But stock, look at the chart, starts building a, a solid bottom. And they mm-hmm. are also they have done a very good deal with a French company, uh, one mm-hmm. of the largest French independent pharmaceutical company. Look at the deal, preclinical deal is one of the best in the industry. Uh-huh. So the, the assets there, uh, I think they just need some patience. That, that's 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 all I can say. Yeah, patience is uh, yeah, patience is is a virtue for sure. Sometimes, uh, but you know, there's that time value of money. But at the same time, Chen, you seem to find ways, always uh, something on your list, something that you're following, that allows you to do some trading too. So you have these long-term investments, like you do in Canical, Pan Orient, and and to a great extent, Sarepta and Sorrento. You sort of trade and invest both of those, don't you? And Sarepta, I would ask you this, Chen, before we let you go. I saw just a moment ago that uh, Sarepta was selling at $26.36. Let's say, uh, you say 80% likely that they're going to get approval. If they get approval, where do you think the stock could go short term? Uh, Yeah, likely to to, to the $40 range. Up to the $40. And they need to raise money. You know, then all the shorts will get out and then the the fund will move in because it's such a good story. So a lot of biotech will likely move in. The stock will, I see, gradually go up, eventually maybe to triple digit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's what takes right. some time. All right. And then you'll, you'll probably be hanging on to at least a small number of your shares, a certain percentage for the long run for as an investment, long-term investment. Right. Meantime. Long-term likely. But, uh, you know, if it has a huge pop, I like it to sell some because there's other sure. things. You know, there are other, you know, I just mentioned that we discussed the cure of the Alzheimer's disease in the children. That's very exciting. That's another story. Yeah, there's another that's, biotech that's, that you're following. and, right. and uh, it's doing, you know, people. It's doing extremely well, but it's very exciting because you think about Alzheimer's disease for the, in the huge. eight months, eight months year old baby, you know, there's no cure. And then now they have a cure. You can see that. I mean, at least the first two baby has is working very well. So if the news continue to come out, this is another spectacular story, right? So th- th- there's yeah. many other candidates I have. And the EpiPen is another one, another stock actually have almost 20% today, my, my biotech. So yeah, so that's many, a, many that's other stories and hidden stories and for, for, for investors, you know, for if you're really look, willing to look into the, you know, the underneath the surface. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's why people subscribe to your newsletter. Uh, go to miningstocks.com to sign up for What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? It's not an inexpensive letter. It is made. Uh, it is meant for serious investors. Uh, but if you uh, qualify as a serious investor, you may want to consider signing up for Chen's letter. So uh, thanks again, Chen, for being with us. And uh, we need to do this more often because you always have so many interesting things to talk about. Thank you for being with us. And uh, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks. Well, don't go away. We're going to be right back with John Rubino, uh, and uh, he's going to help us answer today's question, why does the Fed persist with failed policies? John Rubino will be with us right after the break. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Trimetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. Trimetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. Trimetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective Rea Uranium project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me John Rubino, who uh, was available, thank God, at the last minute to fill in for Ms. Shedlack, who uh, uh, was not able to be with us today. So thanks for joining me again, John. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me back on. Oh, always good to talk to you. Um, dollarcollapse.com is a place where all of my listeners should go to, uh, read John's work and a lot of other very important things that are there. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, just, I think uh, we that is the best advice I can give you. 
uh, today is to go to dollarcollapse.com. Uh, John, our question for the day is why does the Fed persist with failed policies? And, you know, the Fed, it certainly tried in the 1930s to print money, to print our way out. You know, the Keynesian economics were just coming into vogue then at that time. The idea that we could just uh, stimulate the demand side of the economy. Don't worry about supply. That's It's too much supply. We need more demand. And so uh, government deficit spending, print money to pay for it. Don't Don't tax people to pay for it. Uh, and they did it. They tried it in the 30s. It didn't work. They didn't did not acknowledge that it didn't work. They thought they just didn't do it well enough. And Ben Bernanke promised Milton Friedman, uh, you know, shortly before he passed away, that uh, we'll we'll not fail you this time, Milton. This time we're going to print enough money to make sure it really works. And so 2008, 2009 was the test, the big test. And here we are, eight years later, and it still isn't working again. The only answer, though, they have is to double down, John. Why does the Fed persist in failed policies? I think it was, uh, you know, was um, somebody once said that, you know, that's the mark of insanity if you keep doing the same thing and expect different results. But why is the Fed doing it? Yeah, well, it, it is the only tool they've got. You know, uh, Keynesian economic theory doesn't look at the amount of debt in the system which is a crucial oversight. So in their analytical framework, if you cut interest rates and if you increase government spending, you get more people buying more stuff. In other words, higher aggregate demand. And that's their target. You know, to them, if aggregate demand is growing, then the economy is basically fine. And what they've overlooked over the last 70 years is that lowering interest rates and increasing government spending work pretty well when debt is fairly low and interest rates are fairly high. In other uh-huh. words, then you, you have lots of leeway to play around. But but yeah. because they've been doing the same thing over and over again, and debt has been growing with each new cycle and interest rates have been pushed down further and further, we're at the point now where um, their ideas are absurd. You know, if you lower interest rates from here, you get negative interest rates around the world, which we already have uh, with about $13 trillion of government debt out there, we're wow. trading with negative yields. And if you increase government spending from here, you get um, deficits and total debt that, that are at record levels for virtually everybody and at levels that, when they've occurred in the past for other countries, have been debilitating. And yet these guys are proposing to do the same thing. You know, let's increase government spending because what we've done so far didn't work. Let's cut interest rates even further. And and let's, by the way, ban cash because it's easier to have negative interest rates if everybody is on electronic accounts where we can watch them and control their bank accounts and stuff. And, and so that's the absurdity that we have reached now. And it doesn't look like it's going to end. It doesn't look like anybody's going to say, oh, okay, well, this didn't work. So let's try something fundamentally different instead of just um, variations on the same theme. Nobody's doing that. And uh, the reason is that, first of all, basically everybody who's in charge of anything believes that Keynesian economics are the way to go. And second of all, there's no real political benefit in doing what, for instance, the Austrian School of Economics would say is the right thing to do at this point, which is to have the crash. You know, get rid of this debt by going through the inevitable, unavoidable financial crisis and subsequent big recession or actual depression that you have to go through when you borrow this much money. You know, there is no alternative to wiping out this debt somehow. And uh, the problem with that is that 
any politician who presides over that process gets booted out of office in a heartbeat by all the people who are hurt by it. So nobody wants to do it. So we're stuck in this box now. Well, we're stuck in this box now, but there is a battle going on nonetheless within the Fed. It seems to be a very divided Fed now. There is, on the one hand, uh, Bill Dudley from the New York Fed, I believe, that is uh, saying and pushing, at least uh, at least this is what you see publicly, he's pushing for higher rates. What he's doing behind closed doors, who knows. But So you have a division between the hawks and the doves, uh, so-called. Uh, I guess Yellen would be on the other side, and she wants uh, more of the Keynesian approach to lower rates and even go negative. And uh, well, but you know, I came across an article in the Futures magazine titled "The Fed Has to Raise Rates, But They Can't, But They Will," and that was the title of the article. <laughs> so, uh, tell me, John, why do some people at the Fed feel they need to raise rates if the conventional wisdom is that? We need to keep lowering them so we stimulate more demand. Why is there a dissension among some members of the Fed? Are some people actually seeing the reality of what this is doing, what you were talking about? No, none of these guys are seeing any version of reality as far as I can tell. And and one other thing, Jay, they should never let these Fed governors speak because they contradict each other. Yeah. You know, you've got one guy saying, oh, um, we need a higher inflation target of 4%. And another guy saying, well, we've met, met our goals. Let's raise interest rates. No other organization that I know of... Um, makes decisions that way. You, normally, mm-hmm. you, you have your internal dialogue, and then you come to a conclusion, and then everybody goes out and and, uh, and is on the same page after that. These guys are just randomly making things up, it seems like. And anyhow, that's, that's annoying. But the, um, the reason that there seems to be some debate over whether interest rates should go up or down is because the Fed has some different constituencies. You yeah. know, the, it's, it's a private organization owned by the big banks, and interest rates have gone down to the point where banks can't make as much money as they used to in this yeah. environment. There was a yeah. study just out about uh, how, how the Japanese banks are making several billion dollars a year less now in a negative interest rate environment than they would be otherwise. And it, it's a similar thing in the U.S. The big banks that own the Fed would like rates to go up because that would widen out their um, their loan margins. In other words, they'd be able to lend money and make more of a profit. And so they're putting pressure on the Fed to do that. Um, meanwhile, you've got the, the standard Keynesian theory saying, uh, you know what, Un- unless we're growing a lot faster than this, we should be cutting rates instead of raising them. And that's, that's the debate. But if they raised rates... Um, appreciably, let's say a, a full point over the mm-hmm. course of the next six months on the Fed funds rate, that would destabilize the financial markets in several ways, cause a crisis, and then you'd see even the guys who are talking about raising rates now reverse course in a heartbeat. They would go back to cutting rates and and calling for big government deficits, et cetera, et cetera. So a, a little tiny uptick in rates really doesn't mean anything in the scheme of things. You know, there, there's no theoretical debate going on here. There's just different groups trying to make money for themselves and looking at how to do it in the short run. But overall, the theoretical framework, the models that these guys are using have not changed. And it's the models that are flawed. So um, if the Fed were to raise interest rates, for instance, back to historically normal levels, which is to say maybe um, six or seven percent on the long bond, three or four percent at short, you know, maturities of government paper, um, you would see 
the interest costs of basically the whole world go through the roof because everybody has borrowed money on uh, variable terms. You know, governments are doing most of their financing at the short end of the spectrum right now because that's where rates are lowest. So if they raise rates, then their rollover costs of their debt would go through the roof and their budgets would explode. And Or the central banks would have to basically cancel all that debt and, in effect, just wipe out the liability side of the, uh, the equation and let the cash that they created over the past few years, just live out there alone, which would be, in effect, a huge increase in the global money supply. And that would be destabilizing. So there's no way out of this without some kind of a crisis. And the reason that we are where we are is because these guys have been operating on a a flawed model for not just years, but decades. And so the problems have had a lot of time to build up, and they've become gargantuan you know there there's no way out of this without a crisis and our only question now is which kind of a crisis are we going to choose well we have negative rates and uh you know there was an article uh, that i didn't have the time to read it as thoroughly and to understand it as thoroughly as i wanted to but the article from zero hedge today it's gone why foreign demand for u.s treasuries has disappeared and the article talked about how a huge amount of uh of foreign demand has disappeared, or the, actually has the amount of holdings of U.S. Treasuries has disappeared, has yeah. declined very dramatically, and there were you know some very interesting repercussions of these anti-free market movements of zero rates and the hedging costs uh, have risen to a, to an extent because they're, they're they're hedging against the currency changes too. So, uh, as I understand it, the uh, the negative rates are causing a lot of really big. Uh, problems within the within the global economy and that's just one of them and so now all of a sudden we're not getting the foreign buying of US treasuries that we had before we know we Americans have been uh, not buying our own treasuries we've been relying on the Japanese and the Chinese and other foreign countries that save more than they consume and we've gotten away with living beyond our means for a long long time because of that but now Perhaps one of those uh, unintended consequences of low negative interest rates is that the demand for U.S. Treasuries is declining, even though the rates are positive here and they're negative in other countries. So, do you, can you understand any of what might be going on? What some of those mechanics uh, are that may just, you know, uh, cause some sort of a crisis here in, in the Treasury markets? Well, yeah, this is a really interesting story, and we don't completely get the ramifications of it yet because they haven't really hit. It's just starting to happen, but there haven't been any, you know, tangible consequences yet, but there there could be. Basically, what's happening is, uh, as you said, um, demand for U.S. Treasuries has been high around the world because our interest rates are higher than those of Germany and Japan and several other places. So it makes more sense. If you're a, a pension fund in Japan, you buy treasuries rather than, than Japanese government bonds because you make two or three extra percentage points. And you're, and you're getting a sound currency, you know, relatively sound currency in return. Um, but lately what's been happening is the cost of hedging the currency fluctuations because you're being paid in a foreign currency, so you have to hedge that to make sure that um, fluctuations in the price of currencies don't wipe out your profit if you're that hedge fund or the pension fund. And so the cost of doing that hedging has been going up to the point where uh, U.S. Treasury bonds now have zero to slightly negative yields, depending on which country you're talking about um, in, in which to mm-hmm. buy them. And so now that $13 trillion of negative yielding government debt that I mentioned before um, might actually be much more than that if you include treasuries bought 
in foreign countries, which are now yielding zero to slightly negative. And, uh, and so that just increases the amount of debt that is in, in the twilight zone out there, yielding um, negative rates, which makes no sense. You know, there's, there's um, no theoretical or logical justification for, uh, for bonds that, that you have to pay in order to own. And yet that's becoming the dominant kind of debt out there. And that, that does have some obvious ramifications, one of which is a huge increase in demand for corporate debt, which we're seeing out there. Yes. You know, everybody yes. wants to, to own corporate debt because it's fairly safe if you buy IBM bonds or something like that. And it has a positive yield, you know, so everybody's buying that. <laughs> and that's leading corporations to issue huge amounts of new currency. Or, or new debt, sorry. And so we're seeing corporations which were already leveraging themselves to the hilt in order to uh, to buy back their stock uh, continue to issue more debt. I'm not sure what they're doing with the money that they're getting now because stock buybacks are starting to trail off. But yeah. because so many people want their bonds, you know, there's so such demand for uh, um, U.S. corporate debt and for emerging market debt that we're seeing huge increases in, in debt issuance from those guys. So we're just basically leveraging up the world even further. You know, we were already leveraged to the point where some kind of a global financial crisis was, uh, you know, unavoidable. Now we're putting the pedal to the metal. You know, we're borrowing even more money at almost every level of society. So I, this has to end badly. But we're not done with the process yet. You know, clearly we, we think we can borrow more and we're going to try it and we're going to see what happens. But you know, based on the last few years, that whatever we do next is not going to work because what we did before, which was basically identical to what we're doing now, didn't work. No, no absolutely. But there, I guess, you know, academia, as well as uh, the other reasons that you mentioned, they can't, they can't go back and say, oh, we were wrong and we had the wrong model. Uh, there's too much, uh, too much at stake in in many different ways. The politicians lose their office, but also the academicians uh, at Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, the guys that are with PhDs behind their names, uh, uh, would be in trouble as well. You know, I thought it was really interesting. So, what are the central banks? What are the what? What are people? You know, it just leads to this malinvestment that we see all the time. Corporates are getting cheap money, and they go out and buy their own stock. They're not putting it into plant and equipment, uh, research and development, as much as they are just trying to get their stock to go up so that the, uh, the, the so that the management can exercise their options and pull more cash out of the system, more money out of the system. But I thought it was really interesting uh, that, you know, the banks, like central banks now with, z- with zero interest rates, uh, such as Switzerland, uh, I think the Swiss central bank is actually buying blue chip stocks, U.S. stocks and so forth. So now we're seeing, uh, you know, money that's created out of nothing essentially going into buying uh, assets around the world, um, and and I saw an article today that suggested that, in fact, uh, the Japanese uh, central bank uh, has essentially uh, nationalized the uh, the Japanese stock market with a huge amount. I think it was uh, Bloomberg said that by the end of 2017, the 55 largest companies in Japan would be, uh, I think, uh, primarily owned or at least. Uh, majority owned by the uh, by the central bank, so we have this nationalization. Almost, I mean, it's it, it's it just seems to me like it's pure theft, John. Yeah, Jay. Of, of all the bad things we've talked about so far, that's I think the worst because <laughs> the the government nationalizing the um, the industrial base of the country 
has been tried a few times, right? Has it ever worked? No, it's Never. always been a catastrophe. And sure. and so if the central bank buys up all the stock of a given company, they basically control that company. And we know from history that that distorts the decision-making at the company. Because here's what happens when the government owns you. If you're a um, utility or a steel company or an oil company or whatever, um, the, the president calls you up and says, hey, there's an election coming up. We need you to hire 10,000 more people so I can say that employment has gone up under my administration. And you do that. Now you've got all these extra people. And then a congressman calls you and says, hey, um, if you want your appropriation, I need you to, to put a factory in my district. You know, and so you do that, you know, and, and you end up um, almost forgetting what it was you originally did to make money because you become basically a, a welfare branch of the government and you see that and, and then you crash. <laughs> you know, um, one good example of that that's still around now is um, um, the Brazilian state owned oil company. Um BNP, which yeah. is, is, is it BNP? I don't remember their, their uh, ticker symbol, but um, anyhow, they were um, this world-class oil company that was totally corrupted by the Brazilian government. And now they lost something like $20 billion in the last year. And they're, they're on the verge of, uh, of ceasing to exist if they don't get a huge government bailout. And that's what happens. And that, that's kind of what we're creating across the developed world now with the, um, the, the central banks of the world buying up all these equities. Because again, Jay, just because we've done this much so far doesn't mean we're about to stop because what we've done so far hasn't worked. Japan's yeah. not growing. Europe is flatlining. Um, all of these guys are facing political turmoil, which means they have to stabilize the financial system. You know, the stock market has become too big to fail. So you can't have a bear market anymore. And yeah. so they have to continue to buy. Yeah, in fact, uh, I think it was James Grant was suggesting that uh, the Fed is now uh, encumbered and, and really uh, beholden to the stock market, essentially. Well, we're just about out of time here, John, already. Less than four minutes left. Uh, Bill Gross is suggesting that people should buy what central banks have not yet bought, and then he named gold and land. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, after they buy up all the equities, <laughs> and they have to buy something else, um, it, it could well be that they start buying real assets. And that's no crazier than them buying up 50% of the ETFs on the Japanese market or uh, the Swiss Central Bank being the biggest holder of Apple. You know, this once we step into... Um, this kind of territory where governments can buy any private asset they want to with impunity, there's no reason to think that gold won't be on that list. It already is for uh, China and Russia yeah. and India. They're already buying as much gold as is produced by all the gold mines in the world. So if the Western central banks decide that uh, maybe that's a good idea and they start doing it, then all bets are off in the gold market, that's for sure, unless they impose some kind of price control confiscation scheme uh, these are very thin markets and let anybody else, any other big buyer come in and you'll see $100 silver and $5,000 gold in no time. So that's, you know, it's a possibility. Who knows? Well, it's, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, it is a world, John, in which uh, people have long forgotten uh, the work of Adam Smith and other free market advocates uh, certainly don't even want to even think about. Uh, the the work of of the Austrians von Mises and other great Austrian thinkers, and yet the problem that I see is that we are losing our liberty and our freedom as a result of it. And people don't make that connection, but those of us who uh, are Austrian thinkers understand the connection between our freedom and our liberty, and uh, the freedom to 
the freedom uh, free market economics because if you get oh, rid of yeah. free market economics say the government can control everything uh, everything about your life and that's I think that's the worst part about it it's not so much uh, the idea of, of, of a loss of uh, prosperity but it's the loss of freedom as Ron Paul has said if we have our freedom we can become prosperous if you take our freedom away then it's not going to be a good very good story well we're really uh, unfortunately John out of uh, out of time any any last thought here yeah, well, you just made a good point, Jay. Uh, we're on the verge of losing not just prosperity, but also freedom. Because if the, if the government controls the private sector, they control you. And that's what we're headed for right now. Uh, and that's what we're headed for. And that's why Ken Rogoff, uh, his new book called The Curse of, Cra- of Cash, which uh, Ben Bernanke praised, is suggesting we should get rid of cash and uh, have chips implanted into our wrists so the government can follow us around and know everything we do, <laughs> everything. Uh, nickel that we spend. It won't be a nickel. It will be a digit. So, John, on that unhappy note, thanks again for being with us. We'll look to talk to you again sometime in the near future. Thanks, Jay. All right, folks. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, Alana Mercer will be with us to talk about her new book, The Trump Revolution, The Donald's Creative Destruction Deconstructed. It should be a very interesting conversation. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Trimetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. Trimetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. Trimetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. Coral Gold is an experienced precious metals explorer. Coral recently sold its flagship Robertson Gold property in Crescent Valley, Nevada to Barrick for $20 million and a royalty that increases with the price of gold. Coral is now refining its vision and focus for gold exploration in Nevada with over $20 million in cash, a favorable share structure, and three gold properties in the Crescent Valley region near Barrick's Cortez Pipeline operation. Coral is well positioned to pursue a number of growth opportunities now under consideration by management. Coral trades as CLH on the TSX Venture Exchange.